0: back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz, and if you can't tell, my voice is kind of not so good this week. Uh, and that's part of why I wasn't able to do an episode last week. So let's just talk about that real quick before we start talking about what's going on for this week's episode. So I just went on a vacation a few weeks ago, and I came back, started to get back into things. And uh, then I ended up going to New York Comic Con, which was a bit of a surprise to me. Unfortunately, that put a damper on my plans last week to release new episode, as you are already aware. And the reason really behind that is because I was working at my full time job making a video all about New York Comic Con. In case you guys weren't aware, New York Comic Con is the first major convention in the US to come back. It beat out even San Diego Comic Con this year, who only did their event virtually. So the Javits Center was the home to the very first large scale convention of its kind. And that was kind of a big deal. So full-time, I'm a video editor for a website called The Recount, and I convinced them to let me go ahead and visit the event and do a whole video basically showcasing New York Comic-Con's triumphant return and to also discuss how a convention can possibly run during COVID-19. And really, I've actually been working on this video for the past three weeks. I interviewed the event organizers from Pop, I interviewed a few exhibitors, I interviewed Brian Volkweiss, who we might be talking to in Truck Untold very soon also, and made a pretty encompassing video all about NYCC, which culminated in me being there, attending it, and talking to all the different folks cosplaying and kind of just get an idea of what's going on this year. So it was a lot of work. And post con, I'm also feeling the con crud. Pretty positive. I don't have COVID thankfully. But yeah, I'm not really feeling so good this week still, but I didn't want to not do an episode. So this week, we're doing something and we're doing something a little bit different. And I think you guys are going to still be pretty happy about it. But as far as things go, yeah, I am back in action. I'm going to be a little slow this week. And next Uh, for folks who are watching the video version, you might see that I'm not in my uniform, which I typically am for these introduction videos. And that's just right now to make things easier for me. And next week, you might see the same thing as well, I might not actually get in the uniform might just do it in front of my zoom camera, just because it's going to help save me some time make sure I do get a shot next week too, because, you know, another big reason why I didn't get a shot was because I was spending so much time working on that particular New York Comic Con video And all my upcoming episodes are extremely long. We're we're talking some real deep dives coming up here. I don't want to give out names of guests just yet, but coming up, we've got one person who hasn't ever done an interview before. Someone else who's done a bunch of interviews, but none as detailed as this. And we want two hours long. So that's going to be a big one that I'm really excited to share with you guys. And I've got a bunch of other things that are happening very soon. For the most part, though, they're all very long interviews. They take a lot of work. They take a lot more time. And uh, I just didn't have the energy or brain power to really deal with that and get ready for a Comic-Con. So yeah, now we're back. Things are going to still be a little bit bumpy for me, but I do not want to miss another week until at least the end of the year. So that's kind of the tent of the plans. But let's talk about what's going on for this week now. And yeah, I'm coming back with a bang because this week's show, I'm not giving you guys one guest. I'm not giving you guys two guests. We've got three guests for this episode of Trek Untold. And this episode is our original series book review episode because we have two books, three authors, all about the original series of Star Trek. So our first book for this episode that we're going to be discussing is Star Trek Designing the Final Frontier, the untold story of how mid-century modern decor shaped our view of the future. And joining us to talk about this new book are the authors Dan Chavkin and Brian McGuire. This is a book that I was really excited to hear about and kind of came out of left field in a lot of ways because it's about architecture and interior design and things that we don't normally talk about on this show but something I've got some interest in. The original Star Trek series came out at the end of the 60s and at that time period, the visual aesthetics were pretty unique. in some ways, they're timeless, but in other ways they are incredibly dated. And a lot of that goes to that look of futurism, that modernism that we saw in that era. And Star Trek Design and the Final Frontier is really all about that and explaining about the artists, explaining about the artwork that you see and all the different design elements that helped build Star Trek into that visually iconic series that we know it as today. And after our discussion with Dan and Brian, we're going to be taking a look at Star Trek, the original series, a celebration with one of its authors. Ian Spelling. This book was co-authored by Ben Robinson, who we also spoke to on a previous episode, and it's coming to us from Hero Collector. And this is the second book in their Celebration series, the first one being all about Star Trek Voyager, and this one being about the original series. It's an enormous hardcover that has all sorts of new interviews, as well as a lot of old interviews with cast members, folks who've never really been in books before or done much interviews about Star Trek either. A lot of production art, tons of gorgeous photos. It's just a really great book. You know, Celebration is a perfect term for this because it really is like a party. It's got a lot of info. It's a lot of fun. I'm really excited to share this one with you guys. And as I mentioned already, it's coming to us from Hero Collector, who were kind enough to sponsor a special contest we are doing this week and next week. And what's that special prize? Well, if you win this contest, you will be receiving a hardcover copy of that Star Trek original series, a celebration book from Hero Collector. But in order to win that you got to do something for me. So the way this is going to work this week and also next week is that you've got two weeks now to write a positive rating and give me a five star review on iTunes or any other platforms that you're listening to. Take a screenshot of that review once it's published and then send it to me on social media, tagging it at Trek Untold to make sure that I do see it. And that's what you gotta do to enter. I talk every week about how important it is to get those ratings, get those reviews in on iTunes. And this time around, I'm giving you guys a real extra incentive to please do that. So you're gonna be helping me by boosting the show's appearance on iTunes. And you have a chance to win a very, very awesome book. So I hope you'll take me up on that offer. I hope you'll enter this contest. And once you're done with that, take a screenshot of that review. Hit me up on social media at Trek Untold with a screenshot of it, proving that it's yours. And you are then in the running to be randomly chosen as a winner for this contest. And it's going to be running starting this Thursday, October 14th, 2021, the day that this episode has first aired and will run until October 28th. So you guys have two weeks, but I would not wait until two weeks. I would suggest you do it sooner than later, because sometimes iTunes can take a day or two to actually populate the review on its website so yeah giving you guys plenty of time to make sure you can get that in there and that's thanks to the fine folks at hero collector who have a lot of star trek books if you've been a fan of our show for a while as i mentioned you listen to our interview with ben robinson he talked all about the different books they do they've got informational books like the star trek celebration series they've got their amazing shipyard series which details all different books from across the star trek universe and across the different star trek timelines They've got a really fun cocktail book. They have a Mindfulness Mr. Spock book that is also really cool. Recommend that if you want a nice little fun, cute Star Trek book. They've got a lot of different things that they've already put out. They've got a lot more new stuff coming out that you're going to hear about in this week's episode when we talk to Ian Spelling. And in addition to that, you probably know Hero Collectors' name because they make those great diecast models, which I'm a big fan of. And not only that, they're also doing this really cool Build the Enterprise D series right now. This is a subscription service that I'm actually a member of, and I've been reviewing it piece by piece on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash today. So they've got a lot of cool different things for Star Trek collectors. So do check them out at HeroCollector.com. Now let's go ahead and get ready for our big Star Trek The Original Series book review this week, starting first with Dan and Brian, and then a little bit later on, we're going to hear from Ian. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining at higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D-printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in Video Format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash today. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look, too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom however way you like to get it. Now, without further ado, let's bring in this week's guest and get this episode started. Computer, beam in this week's guest. (laughs) And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, or I should say screens in this case, we have Dan Chavkin and Brian Maguire, And they're here today to talk about their new book, which is all about the design of Star Trek, and that is Star Trek Designing the Final Frontier. Dan, Brian, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. It's great being here.
0: So, this book is really cool. This is something that really appeals to me because, you know, I'm, of course, a lover of Star Trek, but I'm not like one of those folks that gets really mired in the technical stuff. Like, I I don't need to know uh, all about the nacelles and things like that. What I really like is these design elements, and uh, this book was like perfect. I'm really excited to chat with you guys all about the different things in this. Um, But I'd like to ask you guys first the question we start all these interviews with. uh, And that's, I'll start with you, Dan. In fact, uh, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek?
1: As a child, I probably glanced at it when it was on tv but it um i wasn't i wasn't really aware of the star trek universe per se um i think at the time i think it was really just sort of a a background presence uh in my life because my i didn't grow up watching it but my my parents did i'm not of the i'm not of the star trek generation so um it didn't really catch on to me until much much later in life
0: and how about you, Brian? Were you a fan at a young age, too, or just kind of came into it later on?
2: Well, I'm old enough to have um, lived through the original Star Trek series. I was in um, junior high school when it premiered, and um, at that time, we had a black and white television, and it wasn't until 1968 that we got a color television, and so Star Trek was the first show that I watched in living color, and as you can imagine, it just exploded. Um so it was, um, that's why I remember it, because of um, the imagery of color all of a sudden. And I've been pretty much a um, Trekkie ever since. Um, I have a lot of friends who um, followed tr- Star Trek. And so I probably know m- more than I would like to admit about the trivia.
0: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and you guys, by the way, should add to you, you guys have very interesting backgrounds as well. Uh, and Brian, I was reading the byline in the back of the book, and you are a
2: molecular biologist and a biochemist. Is that right? I got my doctorate in biochemistry, yes, and um, most of my professional work was in the pharmaceutical industry. I worked in clinical research, um, new drug development, um, mostly in oncology, but also infectious diseases.
0: And Dan, you're also a photographer, right? That's that's your occupation?
1: Uh, yes, I've been a professional photographer now for over 25 years.
0: So I'm very, very curious here. I mean, how did basically both of you guys, working in these very different backgrounds, uh, get involved in architecture and design. And uh, I'll throw this to you first, Brian. How how did you get interested in in this element of things?
2: Oh, in about 19, I'm sorry, 2005, I bought a um, a mid-century house out in Palm Springs, and it was designed by the noted architect Donald Wexler, and it was an all-steel house, so very notable. And so that kind of got me interested in mid-century modern um, architecture and design. And it was because of um, uh, my house in Palm Springs that I met Dan um, He, I think he had just moved to Palm Springs around the time that I bought my house. And um, he knocked on my door one day and asked if he could photograph my house. So that's how we got to be um, acquainted. And in 2012, I um, submitted an application to get my house listed in the National Register of Historic Places. And I had Dan Chapkin do the photo shoot for that. So we've known each other, you know, for the last 20 some years, I guess. Uh,
0: Dan, did you specialize in like architectural photography or something else? Is that how you kind of got intermixed with this part of it?
1: Yeah, at the time I was. I I had moved to, uh, in 2009, I had moved to Palm Springs uh, from Los Angeles. Uh, uh, Prior to photographing uh, architecture, I was a a portrait photographer, uh, photographing for, you know, mostly celebrities for major magazines. And um, but going back to when I was a student at art school, I um really gained an appreciation for mid-century modern design and architecture. And um I really I essentially moved to Palm Springs for the mid-century modern architecture here. And then I've been I've been photographing it almost exclusively ever since.
0: So what is so appealing to you about that specific style of architecture?
1: I really love its sense of purpose and simplicity its use of its use of indoor outdoor spaces uh gla- you know uh, walls of glass and um uh, i'm really much into minimalist design and um the architecture the modern architecture really speaks to me
0: and same question for you, Brian, I mean, what, what has got you so interested to buy this amazing sounding house? Uh, I've seen some photos. It's a gorgeous looking place. Uh, you know, what, what got you really interested in this style of, of architecture?
2: I've always found that um, the clean, simple lines of modern architecture are kind of a metaphor of a clean and simple life. And I think all of us strive for something uncomplicated and uncluttered and um clean and simple um so i think that's why modernism is attractive to so many people it divorces us from the clutter and the the mess of a more traditional uh, setting it encourages you to be less cluttered i think
0: that's a good way to put it i, I like that uh, idea behind it especially uh, so i'm kind of curious now you know you guys have met you've taken photos of your house now uh so when does this mutual interest mm-hmm. of star trek come about
1: uh, it's really born out of my um, formulating the concept for the book, um, which came about about five years ago. Uh, it came out of my sort of unceremoniously watch, finally watching the original series. Um, I, I basically, I essentially binge watched um, all, all the episodes of all three seasons And, uh, it wasn't until then that the, the idea for the book was, was hatched. And since, since the idea was formulated around, you know, or, or based in rooted in Star Trek, uh, and knowing that Brian was, um, very much, uh, a Trek person, uh, I needed, I needed help in that area because it's not my area of expertise. And so, I reached out to Brian and I basically, you know, intimated to him my idea, and he immediately uh, was very, you know, was very enthusiastic and helpful.
0: And I have to ask you guys too: Have either of you gents been to a uh, Star Trek convention yet? Have you done that as part of your quote-unquote research? Have you guys been with one, <laughs> one yet?
1: <laughs> no, I, no, I haven't. No, no.
0: But we got to change that now that things are getting a little bit better in the world. You know, we got to have a book tour, and we got to have that happen at one of the conventions. So we'll <laughs> see if we can make that. Fi- we'll see if we I figure that off-camera, maybe. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'd love
0: to. So let's talk about Design of the Final Frontier, which is such a really awesome title too. But before we get like super deep into the book itself, I want to kind of see if we can define some terms uh, for a lot of my audience who might not understand uh, those these elements of art we're going to be discussing. Uh, and one, a few of the terms that come up quite often are futurism, modernism, and brutalism. And of course, there are, are several other isms kind of sprinkled across the book, but I think those three are the main ones that we see a lot of. Uh, so can you kind of define what these art styles are and what general examples you would see of them in a Star Trek show from the sixties.
2: Well, I heard the word brutalism and that's your, um, that's your expertise. Uh, uh, So (laughs) I'm going to give that to you.
1: (laughs) Well, brutal, brutalism is a movement that um, was rooted in uh, architecture uh, based on the uh, prevalent use of concrete uh, raw concrete. And, uh, it's, um, a style that was very much, uh, popularized in great Britain. Uh, this is around, uh, mid century into the seventies, 1980s. It exposes itself on the show in star Trek, not f- so much through architecture, but through sculpture and, uh, decorative elements uh, on the scene
0: throughout the show that we have uh, exemplified in the book throughout. And uh, what about a definition of modernism and uh, futurism?
2: I'll take a crack at modernism. Um, Well, mid-century modernism is um, traditionally um, considered to go from the mid-40s into the early 70s. And it was a reaction against the more um, uh, traditional derivative architecture that we're used to here in the United States, at least. Its basis is in the um, the Bauhaus movement in Germany, which was really back in the 1920s. A lot of the architects and designers of Europe um, emigrated to the United States after the war, or some, some before the war, and kind of planted the seeds of modernism. Um, California particularly was kind of a hotbed of new and different things and um, as we said in the book it kind of became a petri dish for experimentation both in architecture and the decorative arts as for futurism i think that's a much more general term but i guess it um is more of a predictive thing what we think will be in the future as opposed to what we're what we're doing right now
1: you know and futurism you know i think first was uh an arts and social movement Um, That came out of Italy um, originally, and it deals with uh, a lot of, you know, sort of progressive ideas involving technology and youth and, and, and culture and that sort of thing.
0: Predictive is a, is a very good word to use in this case, too, because a lot of folks to this day still say how Star Trek has predicted what we'd be using today in 2021. You know, basically Star Trek predicted the communication devices and all sorts of things like that. Uh, so it's really cool. That these two styles have kind of met in, in that time period, too. Um, so when it comes to Star Trek design, this is a kind of an interesting question here. And I find this, especially for your book, uh, this is something I really want to get an answer to. You know, Star Trek is from that era of television when it is super campy. I mean, we're talking like the Batman show, 1960s, sixties, two bright, popping colors. It's pop art. Uh, it's pop art. It's campy. Um, so we talk about, you know, what's in your book and you're discussing these different artistic elements, these different elements of art. Uh, how much of Star Trek is camp and how much of it has authentic artistic merit?
2: A lot of the look, the eventual look of Star Trek was um, driven by just the economy. Um, they had a very small budget, um, and they had to just grab what they could as cheaply as possible. Um, so a lot of the um, objects that they used were borrowed from showroom floors. Um, so it was more of just the expedience of um, quickly throwing together a set that would portray the 23rd century or an alien culture. I guess I don't see a lot of camp in um, in Star Trek. I think they were serious about what they were um, um, projecting and portraying and again that they had to do the best they could so if it appears campy today or dated it's simply because they were on a budget and also with regard to um, special effects there's a limit to what they could do back in the 1960s
1: i think the color palette was a bit camp um because it was sort of oversaturated um but again that was um i think that was Done somewhat. It seemed to me somewhat intentionally, because uh, they certainly, with the set designs, uh, had control over that and the look of it. Um, but you know, as far as as far as you like, Brian said, pulling pieces, it really rooted the show in something m- much more uh, realistic, and of course, ultimately futuristic.
2: You can see differences between. Um the two pilot episodes and the ultimate production episodes um, just in the palette of color. Um, it was a lot more muted in the pilots. There was a lot of, the, um, of the, the green color or gold. And I think just by the fact, by virtue of the fact that the people were starting to get colored televisions, they wanted to goose up the color. So the um, engineering and communications people were red Um, The science and medical personnel wore blue and then the um, command people wore the gold or the khaki colored. But I think some of that was just to address the needs of um, a color projection.
0: That reminds me of one of the chapters in the book, which is, in fact, about the fashion of Star Trek. And uh, I found that part really interesting, too, just basically discussing now how the color tones and the values of the Mm -hmm. color changed in that pilot to what we ended up seeing. Brian, actually, would you like to explain the story behind uh, a little bit of why those color choices happened?
2: The pilot episodes had the um, women um, personnel in costumes very, very similar to what the men were wearing. They had black trousers and they had um, um, kind of a turtleneck or loose um, um, top. As urban legend has it, um, Grace Lee Whitney, who was playing Yeoman Janice Rand, complained to the um, the costume guy that um, she wanted something different. And uh, so she suggested the, the mini skirts and the, and the tall black boots. And, um, so they complied and, um, it kind of certainly changed the look of Star Trek. And there's quite a bit of evidence that it altered the trajectory of style, um, based on the Pierre Cardin line of, um, um, of his futuristic looking outfits. And
0: you guys have a great photo in there of, uh, I can't remember his name before, who has some outfits that basically have like, it looks like a symbol of a Star Trek insignia, too. I mean, I'm wondering how much of that influenced ultimately what became to be the Star Trek insignia.
2: Pierre Cardin um, um, had a line of clothing called Cosmopore. He was attempting to portray this, what he felt was the future of design. Um, and he was very interested in space travel and even went as far as to visit NASA in Houston to discuss with them what he, what they thought people should be wearing on the moon. So he was a very avid um, developer of the um, futuristic look and certainly in women's costumes um, with regard to the use of synthetics and um, unisex clothing. um, And again, the short skirts and the very high boots so I guess it poses a question, was Star Trek influenced by Pierre Cardin or the other way around? And we um, dated those photos purposely so you could see when they um, were taken relative to um, on the Star Trek. And it kind of looks like Cardin was influenced by Star Trek. Um, and one very prominent clue is that emblem that you see on um, someone's um, dress. It looks like star trek insignia
0: now there's a lot of time in this book here that's spent on furniture and things like that because obviously the folks at enterprise they got to sit somewhere they got to put their things down somewhere too uh and so I, I really enjoyed that section on the captain's chair in particular and uh it kind of speaks to a lot of other elements that you discuss in the book too related to chairs and furniture uh so dan i'd love it you can kind of tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes story of what the captain's chair actually is and how they put it together
1: well I, I I don't know the specifics of how they actually put it together. Um, I know that
0: you didn't find the carpenter uh, who made that thing
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i I wish i you know I was able to contact one of the set de- decorators but not not the carpenters, and I wasn't able to get a clear answer from John Dwyer, the set decorator, as to how and why that was put together um, other than that. They located this particular chair designed by the designer Arthur Umanoff. Um, and it's really um it came in a chair form and it came in as in as a tandem seat version as well. And uh and then they built the components uh around that chair and uh leaving, you know, leaving a good part of it exposed, so to the point where. Uh, Fortunately, I was able to recognize it and uh, determine the design, the fact that it was designed by a designer, because I I think initially I had seen that chair as just a a total creation from the, uh, you know, from the uh, set, the set designers
0: it's surprising how on that show, too, that a lot of the chairs are very much functional, but others you probably would look at today and be like, what? Why, why are they even a thing? And it turns out that they actually are real things that were sold to people. Uh, like what comes to mind, in fact, is from the Cloud Miners episode, the ribbon chairs. I love that section of that, too. I mean, uh, there's there's a lot of design elements that Star Trek uses that were for functional purposes, but just look so, like the ribbon chair, very far out. It's, I think, a very appropriate term to use here. Yeah. Uh, I'll throw this to either of you guys here. I mean what were some of the really bizarre set pieces that you guys found that turned out to be actual real things?
1: Uh, well, something, something very simple, like uh, McCoy's device is known as a microphone uh, as a sure microphone that we have in the book um, that he uses as a medical device. I thought that was for me a bit eye opening. Uh, certainly. I don't know. I, I, I think, I think, I think there was a, a really kind of, great relationship between the items that were that were pulled for the show and as they coexisted with everything else on the sets I thought I thought I thought they worked very well so I don't know if I don't know if anything totally stood out or came as a complete you know shock or surprise to me but you know perhaps you know Brian you could
2: Well, a lot of things were um, repurposed. Um, As Dan pointed out, a microphone became a cardiac monitor. Um, Along the same line, um, salt and pepper shakers became um, surgical tools. Um, Other things were modified very heavily, not only as we already discussed the captain's chair, but the Burke chairs that were um, used throughout the Enterprise and other sets. they um, added a, um, a vinyl cover to extend the height of it. And then they added some decals on the back um, to kind of, I guess, disguise, you know, what that it's actually a very common everyday item. Um, so, again, I think it just um, goes to the creativity they had to show to work with what they had, that what was available to um, um, serve the purpose of the plot.
0: It definitely didn't hurt that the design aesthetic of that time also was so unique and and very much, uh, you know, there's all sorts of isms we could use here, but it's very much a 60s kind of design. Uh, You know, like I think of things like the Saurian brandy decanter, and uh, you guys explained what that actually is from. And that's just like, I guess it makes sense that it would be an actual item that you could buy at a liquor store back then, but, you know, it seems so alien to me even today.
2: For most people, modernism was very alien looking, which is why it made an ideal genre to use for depicting the 23rd century. Perhaps over in Europe, they were more used to these high-end designers, but Americans were still gravitating towards the very traditional, um, early American um, traditional um, look. And for them, modernism was very strange and very out of place and um, very alien looking. But I suppose it just depends on what you're used to.
0: Now, obviously, you guys know a lot about art and design. It goes without saying because you've written a whole book about it. Uh, but what, what was the, the research process like to do something like a Star Trek book? I mean, you guys already know what a lot of the different things are with your background. But, uh, you know, trying to figure out other parts of it, I mean, how did you go about researching this stuff? Did you go into the Roddenberry Archives or visit any prompt departments?
2: The creative process was first Dan doing his binge watching. And um, he would do a freeze frame and screen grab of um, the items that caught his eye. And it was um, through that process that he amassed such a number of images that he realized that there was really enough for a book. Um, And so the second part of the research was, um, he wasn't sure where these items came from because he didn't know Star Trek very well. So he gave me a flash drive of a hundred some objects. And because I'm such a Trekkie, I was able to key each one down to episode and scene. And so that was the first cut of organization. And then we, we realized that um, it's only a, a certain number of episodes that um, heavily feature mid-century modern. Um, so then Dan did his research into each individual item, um, identifying the designer. And then he would prepare a biography of that designer and manufacturer when appropriate. Um, and so that was the nucleus of the book. And there were so many other things left over that we were able to um, prepare other chapters on special topics like uh, the futurist architecture. Um, the um, we have kind of a prop, set, decoration, miscellaneous um, chapter. So that was that was the
1: research. Well, I think I think largely uh, Brian ex- explained it best. Generally, um, what I did is I, I'm sort of. Hooked into the design community here in Palm Springs and Los Angeles, having uh, co- having you know having collected some of these pieces myself over the years, um, I was able to reach out to certain uh, uh, you know uh, design store store owners and design aficionados uh, about. Um, you know about uh, identifying what some of these pieces were. Um, most of them, most of them, I was able to identify myself, but I, I did need some, you know, assistance in in properly, you know, iding something so that I, so that I knew uh, I would get it right and accurate. And uh, and then then based based on that research, uh, I then needed to find examples of these pieces somewhere out in the world, you know, sold by, uh, sold by, uh, design stores. Uh, and I was, I was able through a particular portal online called first dibs, which is a high-end marketplace for furniture and decorative arts. I was able to locate examples of these pieces, uh, throughout the world. And they were, you know, they were, the store owners were kind enough to, uh, let me use uh, their photographs of these pieces. So that was a, um, a tremendous help in in assembling this book, for sure.
2: You had asked about um, whether we visited um, any facility of um, CBS Viacom. Um, we did go to the Star Trek archive in Carson, California. Um, that's owned by Viacom CBS. We were primarily looking for um, set skills. And publicity photos, um, and things that, um, we wouldn't necessarily have access to just by watching, you know, the DVDs. Um, and we did find some things. Um, but over the years, um, Paramount slash CBS had sold off a lot of things. Um, they had them um, auctions. Uh, they auctioned off props and costumes. And so there wasn't as much as you would like to think in a Star Trek archive.
0: So a lot of folks out there, I don't think they really understand that someone out there actually has to design every little element that you see, especially on a sci-fi show. Uh, and that includes things like decorative elements that we take for granted. Uh, like there's, I think, a spread in your book about like even just what's on the walls, the decorative art on the walls, or just different structures that'll be adorning the walls here. These things are designed by various people. Sometimes they're actually made by a prop person on the show. Other times they are repurposed from actual items like we've been discussing. So when you're looking through all the different things that the Star Trek show acquired, and repurposed and retrofitted, if you will, to look like it's part of the future. Was there ever any artist or piece of art that really shocked you to see that it was there? Like maybe it was something very significant or or important to the culture in the 60s that you're just like, how did it end up on a sci-fi show?
1: Uh, In Cloudminders, the use of the uh, ribbon chairs, actually, because uh, designed by Pierre Paulin, um, because he was a very noted, high-end, sophisticated European designer at the time. The chairs, the ribbon chairs, were expensive in their day. Uh, they're manufactured today. You can still buy them, um, but they're very expensive. And um, so, I thought that was eye-opening to see such a you know a high-end, sophisticated piece of furniture uh, used in one of the episodes of the show.
2: In that same episode, there were quite a few um, metal sculptures. And um, according to John Dwyer, he had acquired those from some um, metalworking artist somewhere out in the San Fernando Valley, and they were actually the bases of um, tables. So John just removed the tabletop and it became a sculpture.
0: So this book is all about the original series, but uh, and I know that's much like your, your level letter to the original series. What about Next Generation? What about Deep Space Nine? Do you guys have any interest in, in researching uh, those shows at all?
2: I never warmed up to any of the reboots. Um, I watched the Next Generation, but you know, once you've seen the original series, nothing measures up. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> it's going to be a lot of angry truckies out there listening to that.
2: <laughs> yeah, well,
1: well, I can give it a, a more impartial answer. I like I sort of I sort of really favor the idea of of identifying things and locating things. Um, I love that aspect of it. I do it when I watch an old film. And I see a piece of furniture that I recognize, um so my love for that um is is pretty great and um there in in fact, there is a gentleman out there who is doing just that he's uh you probably know who he is uh Matthew, but he's he's done that with all the iterations of Star Trek and identifying all the furniture, the glassware, the art it's pretty um it's pretty extensive it's impressive
0: i mean i'm grateful for folks like there who have done that because now i can get myself an actual rock the genome mug and uh, ds9 fans know i'm talking about brian's got no idea what that is because he's over there in original series land he's like deep (laughs) ds 9 thank you (laughs) uh is there anything in here that you think is like super interesting that might like really grab somebody make them want to read the book is there like any particular item that you want to mention that we haven't talked about yet
2: um not so much individual items but i think what's interesting in general is um how they use these items, not only to, um, suit the purpose of the plot, but to develop the character of the person who, um, chose the item. In other words, um, it can reflect the personality of the, of, of the character, um, the sort of things that he has in his quarters or, and then also how, these items articulate with the plot and actually become a character I think one one good example is um, how the art directors used brutalism um, in the in the various storylines or plots um, as Dan pointed out it's a very harsh jagged unsettling kind of style and we seem to find that on planets that, are either engaged in warfare or um, have a streak of cruelty in them. Um, It kind of reflects their persona. Um, Sometimes, brutalism is used to demonstrate contrast. Um, In the episode, um, Taste of Armageddon, there's a lot of brutalism and on a world that ostensibly is peaceful, yet they're engaged on a, in a 500 year warfare with a neighboring planet, but it's all driven by computers. And so their, um, their valuation of human life is um, somewhat suspect when they march 500 people into disintegration chambers, yet they live in a very beautiful world full of art and beautiful architecture, but you see brutalism there. So does that reflect, you know, their underlying personality?
1: Which is mixed with very futuristic furniture, um, namely the Warren Platner wire chair and the Bill Curry lighting, uh, within, you know, you know, coexisting within the same space. So it's a it's a very interesting uh, relationship, an interesting mix of styles, of of soft and hard. Uh, which, which is, which I find very intriguing.
0: All right, so last question for this episode here, uh, and I'll throw this to you first, Dan. Uh, of all the things that you researched, of all the different pieces of furniture, all the different pieces of art and design that you discuss in the book, is there a personal favorite that you have? Something that you just love seeing? that like gives you a smile on your face whenever you see it in Star Trek.
1: I, I think because uh, I'm a fan of the designer Paul McCobb, he was the one who designed the. Uh, molded fiberglass origami chairs that are seen in, uh, trouble with tribbles. So the episode itself puts a smile on my face. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I love it. I love it for its lightness and its, its comedy. Uh, but I also love the, the use of the origami chairs in the, uh, in the cantina scene throughout. And then of course the, uh, The sort of canteen brawl of the chairs being thrown around, which isn't uh, typical of of that use of furniture. For me, it is
2: the um, sculpted chairs by Chromecraft. And those were seen in two different episodes. Um, They were seen in The Trouble with Tribbles and also in Spock's Brain. And I have to confess, I ran out and bought a set of four.
0: (laughs) No reason to be ashamed about that. We all, we all do that. Like I said, I bought that rock, the Geno mug from DS nine. I had to have that. So I totally get that.
2: <laughs> well, you can take comfort in the fact that at the end of the book, there's a catalog of the major items in the book that gives you designer manufacturer and um, um, the country of origin. So you can just go shopping using the book if you like.
0: So we're going to have a nice big star Trek shopping spree after this episode is over. And I definitely recommend, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy this book is because aside from the fact that it does have that little glossary of where to buy the stuff. I mean, for folks who are, again, not so much into like the nitty gritty of the technical things, I don't really need to know all the different things about the warp core. I love hearing about this element of art and design that's in sci-fi shows, especially from the sixties. It's such a unique time period for film and for television. Uh, And and this book is like the perfect companion piece, just deciphering what all the stuff is, what it all where it all comes from and what it all means essentially. So, uh, you know, I really, really did enjoy this book. And, uh, it made me want to learn more about architecture which i normally don't really have much of interest in so congratulations on getting a trekkie to want to learn more about that so once again folks the book is star trek designing the final frontier it is by brian mcguire dan Chavkin. we're gonna have links to that in the show notes for this week's episode so make sure you check it out i really cannot recommend this one enough uh, gentlemen thank you so much for telling us all about the book and, and sharing your stories i really appreciate your time
1: thank you Matt.
3: trek untold will return momentarily trek untold is brought to you by triple fiction productions triple fiction productions produces affordable and unique 3d printed trek inspired products from the original series next generation deep space 9 voyager enterprise and the movies ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes triple fiction productions has got you covered Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Wharf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Triple Productions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before.
1: Hi, I'm Armand Schimmerman.
4: And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years.
2: As her husband, I was very scared.
4: But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. with a five-year survival rate of just
2: 10%. We want it to be much higher.
4: Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. And more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect.
2: Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer.
4: PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options.
2: PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive.
4: You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too?
2: Please, make it so.
3: We now return to Trek Untold
0: and welcome back to trek untold and now joining us is our second guest for this week's episode we've got a guy who has been a part of the star trek universe for a long time we're talking about deep roots here in the star trek world Uh, this is a person who is now an author he's a journalist he's been a fan for his whole life we've got mr ian spelling with us here today ian how's it going it's going okay how are you I'm doing good. It's really great to meet you. Like I said, I mean, we've been talking here and there on and off for a while now, since I started the podcast. And it's nice to actually be able to chat with you and, and see face to face, you know, who the heck Ian Spelling is.
5: There you go. Now you know. Yeah. So and you're getting a visit to my office.
0: It's a very nice office. I'm jealous of the pinball machine.
5: Do you know what that is? I don't. That is Gorgar. That is the first talking pinball machine at my local record store on Long Island. It was the $6 million man in Gorgar for many, many years. And uh, it was always my 50th birthday uh, midlife crisis idea to get that as a gift for myself. For my birthday, all of my friends chipped in and gave me the cash to go get it. Uh, Long story short, it took two years to find it. And uh, it turns out that the guy who sold it to me is friends with a, a man who is a, he owns an arcade and he repairs pinball machines. That guy is a hardcore Star Trek fan. So he comes over to my house to fix the machine, and he sees all the Star Trek stuff, and he's like, "Do you, are you involved in the world of Star Trek? And I'm like, yes, I am. He stayed for four hours uh, chatting about Star Trek. I gave him some Trek swag, and uh, he brought that machine back from probably an 80 out of 100 to about a 95 out of 100. He He literally took it from good to mint.
0: That's an amazing story. It's, it's, of course, there's Trekkies everywhere. When you, when you least expect it, you'll find one.
5: Right? Tell me about it. That's why I brought the story up, because it had the Star Trek connection.
0: <laughs> so we're going to be talking about a little bit uh, the new book from Hero Collector that you wrote with Ben Robinson, which is Star Trek, the original series, A Celebration. But uh, before we get into that, I want to just jump back a little bit in the past of Ian Spelling. We, n- we now know a little bit
5: about your pinball, love. Uh, but what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? I grew up watching Star Trek on PIX, WPIX in New York, Channel 11. Uh, It was on at six o'clock. It was on at 11 o'clock weeknights. So twice a day. And there weren't that many episodes, right? So you saw a lot of the episodes a lot of times. And my mom uh, would occasionally let me watch Star Trek and eat dinner in my room. Uh, I had a little crummy old, uh, I think it was a 12-inch, 13-inch, I'm not sure, black and white TV was my first experience of Star Trek. And we did have a color TV down in the basement. So, I sometimes watched uh, it down there as well, and uh, i I loved what it was about. I loved the performances I loved the uh, the special effects for their time were were unbelievable uh, and uh, that's what caught my attention uh, and then you know the other part of it came just a little bit later when i wanted I went to a few conventions and that led me to my writing career uh, I cover star trek we'll we'll discuss this, but i mean i, I I cover entertainment and Star Trek became my specialty. And, uh, but it was Star Trek that opened the door. I would go to the conventions and, uh, George Takei would stay at the same hotel where the event was held or, or Walter or, uh, Mark Leonard or whoever. And it was a combination of me going up to the actors at the convention saying, would you talk to me for my college newspaper, the Albany student press? Uh, or calling the hotel and saying, can you put me through to Mr. TK's room? Sure. Hang on. Ring, ring. Hello. And I'd say, my name's Ian Spelling. I'm with the Albany Student Press. Would you do an interview with me? And uh, you're going to ask me how I started to write professionally about Star Trek, I'm sure. It all segues from this. Is I, One of the conventions I was at, I, I guess I was 20 or 21, Um, I met Nigel Barrett, and she sat for 15 minutes and did an interview with me. And then I met Roddenberry. I met Gene. And I said, would you do an interview with me? And he said, I can't do it right now, young man, but here's my business card. He literally handed me his business card and said, call my assistant, tell her I said yes, and we'll make it happen. It's a very long story. Uh, If you want it, I'll give it to you. But basically, we did an interview. I sold that to Starlog. In addition to running it in my college newspaper, it actually wasn't the first interview I sold to Starlog. It was the third, but it was the first Star Trek interview. And that's what got me going with Star Trek and Starlog. And I ended up writing for Starlog for 24 years until they went out of business in 09 and became their Star Trek guy. And sorry if I go off on tangents, but uh, everything is connected. You know that's game Six Degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon? everything in my life connects back to star trek so uh there's tons of stories to share which are kind of fun but go ahead what else do you want to know
0: <laughs> yeah i mean you basically do this interview for me now i'm just gonna take a nap you keep talking this is fine easy. Yeah.
5: my wife will tell you i won't shut up
0: go on <laughs> but yeah let's actually uh, take a jump back real quick i, I want to ask about your origins in writing in fact you kind of mentioned how you got started writing in star trek a little bit but uh, you know as a kid were you writing like star trek fan fictions did you always know you wanted to be a writer
5: no, I was never writing Star Trek fan fiction. Here's the key thing with me in Star Trek. I love it. I couldn't tell you in episode six, Captain Kirk wore this tunic or the pips were missing. Um, I think it's one of the things that's actually helped me in my career with Star Trek. Uh, it's what got me the job at Star StarTrek.com where I was the editor for, for nine years. When I got the job, they said we needed somebody who really knows it, but isn't such a fanboy that they won't, you know, that they'll be too excited when they interview Leonard Nimoy, that kind of a thing. So I was that kind of balance of, I love it, but I could also be a professional journalist at the same time. And I think that's uh, served me well. Uh, I was writing for my college newspaper. Uh, I think the first piece I wrote was a review of the right stuff. Um, Happened to be, you know, in that realm, but it wasn't that that just happened to be the movie I saw. And then I, in the first interview I did for my college newspaper was um, Robert Klein, the comedian, because he came to play Parents Weekend. And then I got Hal Holbrook because he was doing his one, main, one man Mark Twain show. And then I started, they wanted coverage back in the, in the mid 80s. The studios wanted coverage from college newspapers. So they do these events called junkets. When you read articles about uh, or see TV Clips, you know, interviews with uh, talent for movies. Those are often done from press junkets, and they invited college students to some of the adult junkets, and then there were also separate college junkets. But when I was writing for my Albany student press, circulation twelve thousand, I was invited for Cocoon and Pritzi's Honor, and then those were in New York, and I was in New York. And then there was uh, that was then. This is now also in New York, and then it was Gung Ho. Pretty in Pink, and Star Trek IV in Los Angeles. I'm a college kid being flown out to LA, put up at a fancy hotel for a weekend, having access to you know all these, these actors. I mean, was anybody bigger than Molly Ringwald in 1986? You know, I mean, it was crazy. Um, so that's how the writing really started. And the, like I said, the Star Trek uh, opportunities fell in line with all of that other writing as well.
0: Pretty crazy. That's a heck of a way to get into the business. I mean, you're just oh, being thrust great. right into it. And that's that's in the deep end, really.
5: Oh, it was great. I loved it.
0: And so I've seen some photos, in fact. I know you've talked about in other places. I mean, you, you basically have visited a lot of sets of different Star Trek shows. You've probably seen a lot of things the average person has not seen. Uh, so what's one of your favorite memories from visiting a set of any of the modern shows?
5: Uh, the modern shows? Or, or any, because the absolute favorite, no question, bar none, was that uh, I went to the set of Star Trek four. At Paramount, when they were shooting the Klingon bird of prey sequence in the water tank in the parking lot at Paramount, and so it was the day the the bird of prey is in there. You see this fake whale tail uh, going along. They had lightning machines and wind machines. Leonard Nimoy is in his white bathrobe with his you know the band around his head, uh, and it, they were filming the scene where the entire crew was on the edge of. The Bird of Prey and Jimmy Dewan slips and falls. If you watch the credits at the end of Star Trek 4, they kind of replay scenes from the movie more or less in order. The only blooper in there is that alternate shot of Jimmy falling in the water. That was the day I was on set. And so, you know, there's Nimoy looking in the camera, watching the shot. Everybody's laughing hysterically. They let me kind of stand behind uh the camera, not on camera, behind the, um, the playback machine, uh, and, and watch that little bit as well, which was really cool. And that was old school Hollywood at its best. You had hundreds of people creating a storm in San Francisco Bay with an alien ship and a whale. And literally it was a piece of plastic, you know, a, a thing in the water in a tank, in a parking lot at Paramount Pictures it, by bar none. That was my favorite. If you're bringing me later in years, uh, I guess it was the the whole sequence for First Contact um, at Paramount. That took up a whole soundstage, that sequence. And uh, it was just I guess it was Neil McDonough and Michael Dorn working that day with Jonathan Frakes directing the sequence. Uh, That was really, really cool.
0: I mean that's a lot of really awesome behind the scenes stuff but what about maybe uh, you know as a fan a moment that you got to see that really kind of blew your mind something that had never been seen before I mean were you ever on set for anything that was just like the debut of some new alien or some new character something that would kind of you know maybe shake the fandom a little bit
5: Um probably not no I mean a- a- every one of the set visits was kind of cool uh, I love a character actor named Ron Canada uh, Ron spoke was him the on the main, show Yeah Ron was the main guest star on uh was it called Masterpiece Society?
0: Yep, Masterpiece Society from TNG. Right, uh,
5: that was my first ever set visit to oh, wow. uh, Next Gen. And Ron was was nicest man, uh, sat and did an interview with me for that, uh, and couldn't have been cooler. I got to hang out for a few seconds with uh, Andrew Koenig, Walter's son, uh, when I was an extra on Deep Space Nine. They let me be an extra and he had a, a small guest role on the show. Uh so I got to to meet him and introduce myself and you know say that I you know knew his father and the whole nine yards and that was very cool. But no, it wasn't. I mean, I was there for uh I was there on Enterprise when uh, Marina and Jonathan were working on the finale. Uh that was interesting. Uh because you know, you heard about later all the complaints about that episode but at the time they thought they were really doing a nice bow on the whole what was it 19 years of the Rick Berman era 18 years i'm forgetting the exact number but it was the that was meant to be a valentine to you know the star trek fans who were with uh, the shows during that whole Berman period and uh, I-, I can tell you from being there that their heart was in the right place But I can understand why a lot of people were upset that why are they giving so much enterprise time to TNG actors and why are they devoting so much story to turning this into a into a holodeck sequence from next gen. Uh, So I, I, I got it. But at the time, I thought it was actually pretty cool.
0: I can't let you go too far because you mentioned you were an extra on DS9. I got to learn about that. And by the way, that episode you're talking about is Sanctuary. We also spoke to Deborah May, who was in that episode, too. Um, So how did you end up getting to be an extra on that episode? And were you like one of the aliens? Like, what what was your costume?
5: (laughs) Uh, I ended up being an extra twice on Star Trek. Uh, I was doing a weekly column for the New York Times syndicate called Inside Track. And then I was also writing for Starlog and uh, I was also writing for the Uh, official Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager magazines. So there was a lot of Star Trek that I was involved with. Oh, and Titan's Star Trek magazines as well. They're official magazines. So I was interviewing for Titan, uh, for Star Trek Monthly, Rick Berman every month. And he and I just got very friendly. And one time I was interviewing him, and I said, Rick, can I ask you a favor? I would like to be an extra on the show. So that I can do a story about that experience of being an extra i 'd love to do a makeup thing, but nothing too long because I, I want to write about you know being on set and he said, sure we 'll make that happen so that that was sanctuary. I was a pejorran, and i'm just in the background, um, I could probably find it somewhere the publicity people took a photo of me uh, with Avery and uh, I think it was Nana and uh, how to be Terry, and Cullum, and a handful, most of the cast. And they all autographed it for me, which was very cool. And I got to keep my Bajora nose, which I finally had to throw out. It got uh, too yucky over the years. But uh, basically, I earned $99 for that. You got paid just under $100 for doing, being an extra. You were there for hours and hours and hours and hours and you may or may not even get be in the shot. You may or may not uh, make it. Even if you are in the shot, they could just expand the frame and, and push you out. Uh, Les Landau, who directed that episode, went out of his way. He he liked my column. It ran in the L.A. Daily News, so it was his local newspaper uh, that you know ran the column uh, among many other papers, but the one in L.A. was the Daily News. And he said, oh, I like what you're doing. I'm going to make sure you're in a shot. We can't cut you out. So I literally walk in ops. I walk behind Colomini, And there's no, there's no missing me. Uh, you'll, you'll notice I, in the episode I'm wearing a, a toupee, <laughs> uh, which always cracks me up. And uh, it was great. And like I said, it, it just took like, I don't know, 45 minutes. Michael Westmore did my makeup, which was insane. Uh, and, uh, at a convention, I guess it was the last convention before the pandemic in 2019, I found the, we had a set photographer follow me. And so he took photos of Westmore doing my makeup and I got Michael to, to sign it for me, which is like one of my prize possessions. It's very cool to have the Oscar winning makeup artist, sign it, do my makeup and sign the photo of him doing it for me. Um, and then I was, uh, a Drayan soldier, D R A Y A N, in uh, *Innocence*, which was an episode of *Voyager*. Uh, that was a different situation, which was really interesting. Again, I, you know, this is a couple of years later, and I said to Rick, "I'd love to come back out again. We want to do a day in the life story. This was for *Starlog*, a day in the life of *Star Trek*. And he said, "You know, give me more. And I said, "I get to the set at like seven in the morning. I would interview the security guard. I'll interview the craft services people. I will interview the sound guy. Let's get what it's like to be on set. And that was the day they were also shooting Deep Space Nine and they were working on one of the movies. So I literally crisscrossed all the sets. I went to Berman's office. I went to the editing bay. I sat with the, the people who make the food at craft services. I spoke to you know uh, LZ, the security guard. stood in front of, you know, the soundstage. I spoke to whatever, Tim Russ. Uh, There's a photo of me interviewing uh, Ron Moore and Brandon Braga. And I'm in my costume from the episode. Uh, It was just really very, very cool and very strange. And again, $99, you don't get a credit. And there's no residuals um, as well. You don't get you don't get any extra money. But I'm in the episode. It's it's this gray costume. I look like I'm in a potato sack. Uh and um basically just some spots and then they put a veil over uh our heads. And there were three of us and we basically hide behind a bush uh while, with with little weapons in our hands uh while Tuvok and, uh, walks with these little kids who come out of like the shuttlecraft. And if you look in the background, if you go to the uh the memory alpha page that they have for me, there's a photo of me from Deep Space Nine and a photo of me from the Voyager episode as well, and uh, it was a blast. It was an absolute blast. I'll tell you one fast other story. I realized if I had asked Rick, could I have a line of dialogue? He might have let me, and I never, never asked. Um, so years later, I was doing the licensed magazine for Charmed, and I was dealing with Brad, uh, Brad Kern, the producer, and like with Star Trek, I was doing the magazine. I was interviewing him almost once a month. And uh, we had a whole conversation about whether or not Charmed would be back for another season. He said no. And he wrote this season finale as a series finale. And I said, Brad, you're going to get renewed. I've seen the CW's pilots. It's cheaper to keep you on the air than it is to go with new, you know, spend all the money on new shows. And he's like, no way. I'll bet you anything. He said, what do you want if you're right? And I said, it's always been my fantasy to have a line of dialogue and die on screen. So on Charmed, I actually got to play a demon named Ian, and I get killed. And I got paid $900 because I had one line of dialogue. Are you all right? And boom, that you got uh, 50% each repeat initially until it went down to X amount. That was in O. 0- Five. i still get checks from charm I, I think i have one right here hang on for 16 cents that is amazing uh, yeah uh, yeah all these years later i make about a hundred dollars a year from it <laughs> that was cool because it got me on imdb uh there's literally a credit at the end of the episode uh you know guest stars and ian spelling as ian uh That, that was a, and I got blown up. Like I wanted to, my, my demon master who was a Star Trek guest star, uh, named Lee Steinberg blew me up. (laughs) He was kind of like a phantom of the opera character. It was great.
0: I mean, you're basically living the dream here right now. I mean, aside from being blown up by people, which is also really cool. That's one of my dreams getting killed on a show too. But I mean, you're basically living the dream here. You're hanging around Star Trek sets. You're getting to be an extra here and there. Uh, you're building relationships with all these people. Uh, but you know, I got to ask you, you know, just let's talk just specifically in the Star Trek realm here also, um, Having access to so many different people, so many of the big stars, so many of the character actors, who would you say was the most intimidating person to ever sit down and do an interview with you?
5: Let's see. Mark Alimo is scary as hell. He's a scary, scary man. Uh, he's a riot. Uh, I, I actually just moderated his panel in Vegas. Uh, still scared the shit out of me. And, but he was great. Uh, he's, he's really a nice man. But that was the one that going in scared me. And talking to him scared me. Um, let's see. As a When I was much younger, Mark Leonard uh, was very much like his character. Very serious and actorly and professional and no nonsense. And I don't think he cracked a smile the entire interview. Uh, that was a little intimidating. Especially because I had just spoken to Jimmy DeWin, who was, you know, chatty and friendly and the whole nine yards. And and Mark Leonard was perfectly lovely. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, he was difficult, but he was just, he was, he was a serious man. And, uh, you know, he took what he did, even in an interview with a, a 21-year-old college kid, deadly serious. Kate Mulgrew is an interesting case. Have you ever spoken to or seen interviews with Kate? She is very forthright and very, uh, you have to go in knowing your stuff with Kate if if you don't, she will call you on it, as she should. And um, she's she she is um, super smart and has very strong opinions. And you have to be ready. If you share an opinion with her, you have to be prepared to back it up. She'll accept if she doesn't agree with you, but you need to be prepared to present your side of an argument.
0: Fair enough. That's. So I'm going to consider that my warning for whenever I talk to Kate Mulgrew one day. Hopefully that now I know what to get ready for.
5: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a warning. I would just call it uh, practical advice.
0: Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Now, you know, from one interview to another, let's I'm going to make a Star Wars reference here, but, you know, I, I would consider you to be the Jedi, and me, the young Padawan in this situation here. Uh, so from one person who does interviews and is a journalist to another, uh, what would you do if you got a guest, let's say that you're interviewing, uh, who is being obtuse, they're not cooperating, or maybe they're just being difficult. I mean, what are some of the things that you do to try and turn an interview from going sour back to being sweet?
5: I mean, my lesson from a couple of editors was always talk about, start with what they want to talk about. So if they're there to promote a new movie or a new episode, or if one of the actors directed a show, start with that. Start with what you know is of interest to the person that you're talking to. Uh, It doesn't always work if you're talking to someone who's on episode 22 of a series that's been on for seven years, and you're their 10th interview of the day and they're tired and cranky, you might not get anything out of them. You really might not. But you know, some simple steps to try to avoid that are to ask questions that uh, you hope or think or expect will be of interest to them. And uh, rule number one, never, ever ask a yes or no question. Uh, because you will literally sometimes, if they're not in a good mood, get a yes or no answer. And then all of a sudden, you're stuck with, Silence. Or you have to then kind of think on your feet and say, ask a follow up question that's in the same line, but isn't a yes or no question. So you're better off not asking the yes or no question. Uh, I I learned that from a a mentor in college. And uh, my editor, I wrote for many, the guy who edited my uh, New York Times syndicate Star Trek column for many years said that's what he lives by. Um, do not ask a yes or no question. And again, there's some interviews you can't salvage. I, I've had interviews go south. Uh, I've had Star Trek interviews that didn't go great. Not, not, every, not everybody's a great interview. Not everybody is in the mood the day you get them. Uh, I, I did an interview with one of the actors who I'm very, very, very friendly with. Um, but there was construction going on in her home that day. And she literally was interrupted by the noise and a child and a pet and literally was distracted. And there was, you know, I I got just enough out of it to make it a decent piece. But at the end, this person basically just said, so sorry, I know we've had better interviews than this, you know, uh, but it was the way it was. And that was the only time this person was available. So I had to go with what I got, you know what I mean?
0: I know exactly what you mean. And I mean, I've had some troubles on this show and other places as well. Uh, I've, been, I've been lucky that for the most part, a lot of my interviews have been very good. and I've had really awesome guests, but uh, I, I know exactly what you I mean, where sometimes they just don't want to do it. And you're kind of just, you know, trying to pull teeth to get good answers or get a good soundbite out of them.
5: The other thing you get that's a nightmare is because of modern technology is a Zoom call or even a cell phone interview. I did an interview for uh, a book I'm working on with somebody who literally cut out mm. constantly. So at the end of the interview, I had to say to him, listen, I'm going to send you the transcript. And can you fill in the blanks for me? Because you literally cut out, I would say, for the first, the, the interview was almost an hour. And for the first 10 or 15 minutes, literally, I could hear every other word. <laughs> and I don't want to have to make stuff up. So I said, I'm going to send it to you. Just write it back to me. And he's like, not a problem. We'll do that.
0: I don't want to name names, but I've had a similar situation where I basically had to re-interview the same person twice because of technical difficulties and uh on their end. But uh so it's it's nice to be able to commiserate right now with someone about this. Have <laughs> you. you
5: ever screwed up completely and not recorded a conversation?
0: That hasn't happened in a long time. I've I've screwed up other elements of the recording, uh, or I've screwed up audio stuff here and there, but I mean having done this for a long time now, I've 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 made really egregious Mistakes, but I haven't done that in a long time and hopefully I don't do that again for a very long time.
5: <laughs> I, I interviewed one of the uh, the little people from Willow a million years ago. And back then it was a tape recorder. You brought a tape recorder with you. Somehow the battery didn't work or it was on pause and I screwed it up and literally I had to call the publicist and say, Can we do it again? And the guy was gracious enough to do it again. And ever since then, now now everything is, you know, digital and I use the the notes on my phone sorry, not the notes, the uh, the recording on my phone to do it. But I was, after that, I went from using a regular tape recorder to the micro cassette recorder and the regular recorder. I did everything twice. And I can't tell you how many times it happened where one or the other recorder didn't work. And thank God I had double dipped because otherwise I really would have had a problem
0: yeah that's an important note i think for anybody who's listening right now who does want to pursue journalism or wants to pursue podcasting or interviewing or youtubing whatever uh it is very important to have a backup of everything you do and i'm talking you know your files as well always should be backed up in two places any audio that you especially do should be backed up in two places and ideally recorded in two places if you can do that and uh if you're someone who's doing stuff on camera too you know we're we're just talking tips now (laughs) but if you're doing stuff on camera also uh you know make sure that if you're going to be recording uh, directly into your camera do have a second source of audio that is external from that camera, because if your camera screws up, you've lost everything. But uh, that's like a whole different episode, Ian. We're going to have to do a whole episode about how to do interviews, I guess. But uh, let's let's talk about the book now, which, as we mentioned, Star Trek, the original series, Celebration. Uh, This is now the second book in the Celebration series from Hero Collector. Uh, So, yeah, just real quick, I mean, what what is the elevator pitch for this book? What's it all about? Uh,
5: The book is about 55 years of the original show. And you know, there are books by and about the actors. There are books about the ships, there are books about the makeup. There really isn't a co- and there are interview books, but there isn't a comprehensive book really that explores the making of the show from the early memos that Roddenberry wrote to the early Desilu days, to Paramount taking over, to the production of the episodes, to the finished episodes, along with an episode guide. And a little bit about, you know, for example, the fandom or the fan letter, uh, fan letter campaign to save the show. So this covers the entire scope of the original show. We don't get into the movies. We don't get into the animated show. This is about the three seasons of the original series, and where we could, we interviewed people who are still with us, um, and where we couldn't, with people who are no longer with us. Uh, a lot of them were interviewed over the years, either by Ben or myself. Uh, it's actually why Ben asked me to co-write the book with him uh, because he knew I had interviewed Jimmy Dewan multiple times and uh, Ron Nimoy multiple times and that kind of a thing. And I had access to all of that. And uh, so that made it made me the right person to, to do this particular one with him. And the whole goal was Ben likes to call it a convention in a book. And uh, I, I really agree with that. Uh, Yes, there are books that go into more depth on individual topics. Uh, We had 256 pages. So, you know, a chapter on makeup is eight or ten pages. Uh, But I love the chapter on directors. For example, Ralph Sinansky is still alive. I think he's 98, and he did 6.5 episodes. And the .5 is the Tholian web, and he got fired during the making of it. So all of that is in there. And then the other key thing was to get people who hadn't been, who were still alive, who really hadn't been covered before. So we've got Carrie Foster, who was one of uh, the guest stars in the original series. And she was the only one who worked with both Jeff Hunter and Shatner, who's still alive. Uh, We've got uh, April Tatro, who is the, forgive my dog, I think he's annoyed that my wife went downstairs. Uh, we, we got April Tatro, who was the human version of the cat Isis in Assignment to Earth. Uh, I, I don't pretend I discovered her. Larry Nemichek, a good friend of mine, found her and had her on his podcast. But I believe this is her first in-print interview that she's ever done. So I'm thrilled to have that. Um, and probably you're going to ask, you know, is there anything you really discovered for the book? The coolest thing in the book for me... And I wish we had more pages devoted to it, but again, space is space, is the Phaser rifle that helped sell uh it was it was made for Where No Man Has Gone Before. And it was made in part because NBC wanted proof of some sort that Star Trek could be an action-oriented show and not just, you know, high-minded sci-fi. And so they commissioned this phaser rifle. Uh, a man named Ruben Klamer designed it. You know the game, the game of life, you know you spin the wheel and you get little cars and drive around. He is in the uh, Hall of Fame, the game Hall of Fame for inventing the game of life. He built the uh, the gun, the Napoleon Solo gun from Man from Uncle. That toy sold a gazillion pieces. And so that's when Roddenberry brought him in for Star Trek. That phaser rifle helped sell the show. Then it disappeared. It was used it was used in the episode it was used in a famous photo shoot. You see Shatner holding it. Uh, he's got a, you know, signed a million autographs of that particular photo. No one ever saw it again. It not only vanished from the set, it vanished from the world. Turns out it was given back to Ruben Klamer, who had it for 40 plus years. He sold it at auction a few years ago for almost a quarter of a million dollars. Okay, Klamer was 99. And I tracked him down in March. It took me two weeks of sleuthing on the internet to try to find the man. His assistant calls me one day and says, he's too sick to do you know, interviews right now. If he feels better, we'll try to make it happen. I don't know. A month later, the phone rings and it's the assistant saying, Mr. is having a good day. Do you want to talk to him? So I dropped everything and did the interview on the spot. And that was March of 2021. He passed away last month. So we have what is either one of or the very last interview that he ever did in the book. And that's really, really, really cool because it, it lets him share what he feels is his place in Star Trek history. And I'm telling you, there are certain pieces in Star Trek. If, if Roddenberry hadn't done this, if this actor hadn't done that, if Jeffrey Hunter had, you know, all of these things, we don't know how the game would have changed for Star Trek if B. Joe and John Trimble didn't do the letter writing campaign. Would we still have, you know, would Star Trek be what it is? This guy is right in there with those what ifs. If, if Ruben Klamer didn't design that phaser rifle, I don't know if NBC would have picked up Star Trek.
0: I got a chance to take a look at the book in advance and it really is cool. I mean, a celebration is a great way to put it uh, because it feels like a party. I mean, you've got like full color, beautiful photos all over the place. You've got all these behind the scenes bits of production art as well in the book. Uh, and just, of course, all sorts of really amazing interviews that you and Ben did, which have a lot of folks who, you know, this is truck Untold. We like to track down the same people you guys are doing with that book, a uh, whole bunch of interviews with folks who've never really talked much before or sometimes at all. Uh, and I'd actually like to talk a little bit about Lloyd Haynes, um, who was L- Lieutenant Alden. And I really like that section uh, because that's a guy I didn't really know much about either at all. And you
5: got a little bit about him. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about Lloyd? Lloyd was a a fascinating actor. It was a guest spot for him. He thought it might lead to more and it didn't. Uh, He passed away. There wasn't much I could do, but we wanted to be sure to include him because he was an early African-American presence other than Michelle on the show. And he went on to have a great Uh, role, was it, it, why am I blanking on the name, was it Room 222, right? Uh, And I found a memoir about him by his wife. And that I was able to pull some material from to try to present a view of the man for people who, like you or or me, didn't know really who he was, or more importantly, what he was about as a man and as an actor. And I think, you know, this little two-page chapter Gives you some sense of, hey, this was an actor and a character that were kind of important, to A, to Star Trek, and B, to entertainment history in context of the times. And B, that he apparently, by all accounts, was was, was a good man. And, uh, you know, that he got his shot having a successful television show as an educator uh, was great. I'm glad you picked up on that one. He was, I would, there were, I, I don't quote me on this or I guess I'm being quoted. But really now. I think we had 18 guest stars that we were including in the book and simply because other chapters we decided needed to be longer in some cases it was it was just easier to cut out some of the guest stars. So unfortunately we did. And uh, so there there were a number of pieces that didn't get in there and we had debates about well do we keep this one or this one? And he was one of the ones I said Please let's keep him. I think he's important.
0: Well, since you mentioned what got left on the cutting room floor, or if this is DS Nine, what we left behind, uh, in the case of these interviews that you didn't get to use, are there any plans to put them out in Star Trek magazines anywhere else? Are these going to be able to be seen somewhere somehow?
5: Um, I'm going to be honest with you and say that they have uh, the ones. I, there's no new interview that didn't get used. Okay. Uh, you know, in some cases, if I was on the phone for an hour with somebody and and the chapter's two pages. Obviously, I didn't use all of the material, but the, the best stuff is probably in the chapters that are in the book. Uh, I would I would word it that way. Uh, but there's no new interview. Uh, let's see, Sandy Gimple is in there in the in the stunt section. Bobby Clark is still in there. Uh, April Tatro has her thing. Uh, Andrea Dram is, is in the book. All of the new interviews were included in the book.
0: All right, that's good to know. And, you know, there's also just lots of new stuff I didn't know about old characters we've already known a ton of things about. Like, uh, you know, I, I like there was a part about Captain Kirk and there's a section about how Gene Roddenberry was having a hard time really finding the character of who Kirk was. And I'd love it if you can kind of just tell us a little about that story too, about, I guess, uh, if you will, finding the character of Kirk.
5: You know what, Kirk, a lot of characters become the actor over time. Somebody creates it, then they start to write for the actor. It really wasn't so much the case initially with Kirk. Kirk was a creation, and Shatner played him, and Shatner had ideas about what he wanted in there. And everybody knows the stories that you know. Shatner took important lines from other people uh, that upset those other people. Sometimes his co-stars, uh, the series regulars, and sometimes guest stars. But he said, and I don't disagree with him to a degree, that it was always about the character. It's, it's Captain Kirk who should know this. It's Captain Kirk who should make this realization. I get the, this is me pretending to be Bill. I get the point that, uh, you know, this character in a script should have a line of dialogue. But for the sake of the captain, it's the captain who needs to say it. And honestly, Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and the, and the various producers on the show took Shatner's side in that argument. Uh, and there's, it's addressed in the book. There was a whole uh, fight between Shatner and Nimoy over who was the star of the show. Nimoy was getting a lot of publicity, a lot of press because people were fascinated by the the pointy ear devil character on the show. Right. And uh, he was getting a lot of notoriety as well. And Shatner felt he was the star of the show. And finally, it came down to Shatner sitting in a room with Nimoy and Roddenberry and Roddenberry having to say, Kirk is the main character and Shatner is the star of the show. It obviously created some tension between Shatner and Nimoy and certainly between Nimoy and Roddenberry. But the practical reality was, who is the main character on the starship? It's the captain and you know it, it's a shame that egos got bruised and lines got taken but at the end of the day if it if you boil it down to it has to be about the captain that's the way that's the way the cookie had to crumble
0: now, this book has chapters on the actors it has chapters about the characters it has chapters behind the scenes information and there are some chapters that are just about episodes themselves And uh, one of the most iconic episodes and most beloved is The City on the Edge of Forever. It's one of my personal favorites. Uh, It's a Harlan Ellison episode, if you want to call it that. I mean, his name's on it, even though he didn't necessarily like that, uh, which we can maybe talk about here. But, you know, again, Star Trek has been around now for 55 years. A lot of the stories have been told. I would love to know if you learned anything new about City on the Edge of Forever.
5: Not really. Uh, You know, part of what we part of our mission with the book was to separate myth, the reality from the myth. I think that applies to that episode. Uh, look, Harlan was not happy with the rewrites. Uh, bottom line, he, we, he wanted his name taken off, the whole nine yards. Uh, but it ended up being a great episode. And come on, you got to give credit to, to Roddenberry where it's deserved, right? Um, Harlan was probably turning in his grave at the, the mention of that sentence. But the reality is, you know, they they, they turned out a great episode, with him without him despite him whatever words you want to use it it came together beautifully so and the act i don't know if you've ever seen some of the 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 shots that were taken out some of the uh, little snippets there are extended moments of scenes where you get more reaction shots it's unbelievable stuff as a fan just to see the missing footage that that was really cool during my research i was looking at some of that stuff uh you know, just the, the perspective was slightly different when when Edith Keeler gets hit by the truck uh, and all of that. Uh, very, very, very cool. But no, I mean, again, part of the challenge with the book was we're trying to make it accessible to the hardcore fan and give them as much information that's new as possible. And we're trying to introduce Star Trek to maybe somebody the original series to maybe somebody whose you know, entry point is Discovery. So, we really wanted to just you know focus on the facts, what made the episode special, why it's unique within Star Trek. If you notice, we don't call that listing of those episodes the twelve best episodes they're really the most important episodes for various different reasons, and that that's the key thing and so I personally that's one of my favorite episodes uh no question, but we Ben and I had this conversation was let's just Try to stick to the facts that we know, um, and pull the myth out. And I, I think we accomplished that, uh, particularly in those looks back at the individual episodes. And, and I'll tell you quickly: Ben and I kind of fought each other because, we, again, we had limited space. There were a lot of good episodes. There, you know, there there are ones that didn't make the cut, even though they'd be on somebody else's list. And uh, we just—I—I I fought for. This episode and then fought for that episode. And, you know, what we went with is what we went with, because we felt those were the ones what we could say the most about Hmm. as well, which I thought was key. And I
0: like how you are kind of demystifying and separating the fact from fiction, as you said, that's a great way to put it, because there are some episodes that have a lot of like stories where no one really knows what the actual truth is about them. And right. I, I think one of those episodes also that gets talked about a lot to this day still because of its relevance, uh, is the episode Plato's Stepchildren because that has the first on-screen kiss with a black person and a white person on TV. That's that's some groundbreaking stuff here. But there's still like all sorts of stories about it where people disagree on what actually happened or it was actually the you know wasn't actually the real first kiss on television for that kind of thing. Um, so I mean, what did you learn about that episode and that particular moment?
5: Okay, that was very interesting uh, to me personally because it wasn't the first of its kind. It wasn't even the first on Star Trek. He had kissed another actress of color previously, Uh, just not African-American, just a different nationality. So uh, the whole thing got blown up at the time as partly a publicity thing, right? That this was a super special episode. It's a great episode and it was important and it was great that they kissed, but it really, it wasn't the first. It wasn't even the first on Star Trek. And then you also run into, I, I reread, Nichelle's memoir. I reread Shatner's memoir. Everybody has a different take on the same exact story. So there's no right answer that we can discern. Okay, we don't have anything behind the scenes. There's no footage of it that I could watch to say Shatner's right and Nichelle is wrong, Michelle is right and Shatner's wrong. So we put both perspectives in the book. You'll also notice you asked about tricks for journalism. One trick is, when you're dealing with something that's, you know 55 years ago, and there's really no way to completely 1,000 percent accurately uh, say this is true or not, is wherever possible, when somebody's discussing something that's in question, it's a quote, so that you know that is that person's perspective, and not necessarily 1,000 percent accurate. There, there's only so much you can do about that. Uh, you know, we, there's a lot of uh, questions in terms of the casting of the show. We spoke to Joe Diagosta, the original casting director, who hired a lot of the people. But, you know, again, it was 56 years ago plus that he started to cast these people. And other people, have, I'm, do, I'm dealing with the next gen people now. And there are different stories about how some of them got cast you know, was Gates McFadden, did she have her choice of roles or, or not, you know, all of that kind of thing. It's, you know, Rashomon, everybody has a different story. There's another good example in there with the Horda, with Janusz Prahaska, Prochaska, um, who supposedly came in with the Horda costume and either laid an egg, you know, the, the Horda shell, or uh, a chicken, like chicken legs that supposedly came out these were producers who were in the room, writing a memoir, their own, and have different viewpoints of what happened. One of the guys wasn't even in the room, and he's telling a version of the story. So who knows? So again, in that chapter, I, I, we specifically reference that we're not sure what the reality is. And anybody who has a view of what happened, it's in quotes. And that's the best you can do 55 years after the fact, with no evidence.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's still, you know, an amazing piece of work. You know, in spite of the fact that you can't necessarily get every single fact, uh, you know, you guys present the whole story, which is very important to at least trying to decipher what is the truth.
5: Right. Well, we put it out there to let people decide for themselves, I guess, is the way you could put it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, again, this book is like a serious deep dive. It's great for people who are just getting into Star Trek. It's really great for folks who are super deep into it. So a lot of really great things about it. Um, But as we mentioned at the start of this episode, this is the second book in the series, the first one being Voyager. So are there plans for more Celebration books from Hero Collector?
5: Yes. I mean, if you just do the math on the anniversaries, what's coming up? 35th of next gen. And then you've also got a Deep Space Nine anniversary. uh, So I can tell you those are the next books.
0: I feel like it's not really spoilers. It's just kind of what it is.
5: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, the the Voyager book did great. Uh, the Star Trek uh, original series book is doing great. Uh, it was number one in one of its... I uh, can't talk. It was number one in one of the Amazon categories about, uh, you know, books on uh, art and film, uh, which was amazing. And it's, it's still doing nicely. And uh, it's gotten great reviews. Uh, fans seem to like it. Uh, I think we did hit that nail of trying to appeal to newcomers and hardcore fans uh I think the hardcore fans will have heard the stories before, but will find some new information and There are two hundred photos in the book, and there are some that they've i guarantee you that there are a couple that fans have probably never ever seen and even the hardest of hardcore fans, there are a couple of dozen shots that people have rarely ever ever seen. I was I was with George Decay at uh, the Star Trek event in Las Vegas uh, in August and he and Brad, his husband, were were looking at the book and they were looking at the chapter on you know on George slash Zulu and they both said to me, Where did you get these shots? We've never seen these before. And I saw Brad the other day at New York Comic-Con and he said, Can you help us get those shots? Because they'd love to have George sign them at you know autograph shows and events. Because it'd be something that he hasn't signed before. So I'm going to try. But that's the kind of thing where if if one of the actors from the show is looking at you and saying, I've never seen this photo before. You've got something pretty cool in your hands.
0: All right. So that is the TOS celebration book. We just talked about the Voyager celebration book a little bit also, which is another really excellent book. I also own that one. Uh, I love that one, too. Um, But what else does Hero Collector have this year coming out?
5: Yeah, there are a bunch of Star Trek books coming up from Hero Collector. They've got a Star Trek The Next Generation nerd search. If you saw the Tribbles nerd search from uh, last year, this is in the same vein. It's kind of a Where's Waldo with mistakes made on purpose from images from the next generation. Uh, It's very funny. There's the Book of Grudge, which is uh, written by Rob Perlman, uh, who knows his Star Trek is one of the funniest guys on the planet. And it's basically inside the head of Grudge as he deals with the humans around him. uh, And it's very funny. And then you've got a couple more ships books. There's the Alpha Quadrant, volume one, uh, ships book, and a, and a second volume coming up uh, probably first or late, late first quarter, or early second quarter of next year. And the biggie is a woman's track, which Nana Visitor is writing. Uh, and it's unbelievable. She is interviewing all sorts of people. Basically, that book is the women of Star Trek, how it affected them, and how, how Star Trek affected the women and how the women affected Star Trek. So it'll be interviews with everybody from showrunners of the current Star Trek shows to people like Kate Mulgrew, to Stacey, uh, Stacey Abrams, to female astronauts, female scientists, all of it. And uh, that's a work in progress and that should be out uh, probably in the fall of 2022.
0: So a hero collector always finding ways to make new Star Trek books. It's pretty impressive.
5: <laughs> yeah, and it's not just Star Trek. That's the funny thing. I mean, there's Battlestar Galactica. There's WWE. There's uh, Galaxy Quest. There's the Beatles. Um, oh, you know what else is coming up? I can actually show you. This is the Star Trek Advent Calendar. And it's an Advent Calendar, which means it has 24 separate gifts in it that you open individually. And this is the next gen one. And it's a board cube. And it's very, very cool. And it's not just next-gen gifts in it. There's a whole variety of of very cool Star Trek stuff in there. And um, this is available now for pre-order. And I think it's it's supposed to ship either in the very near future or in the next few weeks in time for the holidays. This is unbelievable. Uh, I'm actually going up to uh, Ticonderoga tomorrow to do a, a box opening of this. Or, or an unboxing, as we call it. Yes. <laughs>
0: And outside of that stuff, is there anything else that you're working on right now that you can tease us or tell us about that's in Star Trek or even outside of Star Trek?
5: Um, you know what? I'm a freelancer, so I do a little bit of public relations. Uh, I do a lot of entertainment writing. Right now, I, I, I've just been knee-deep in uh, James Bond, uh, writing about James Bond. And right now, I'm actually writing. Uh, I hang up with you, and I have to finish my interview with Jason Reitman about Ghostbusters Afterlife uh, that I'm doing. And I get a kick out of things when worlds collide. I literally just saw a beautiful, very heartbreaking movie called Mass, which is a heavy duty, uh, independent drama about uh, two families that sit down in the wake of a mass shooting. And uh, Jason Isaacs is ridiculously good in this movie. Uh, It wouldn't be surprising if he got an Oscar nomination for it, or if the movie did itself. And so I had to do an interview with him. And it was just very cool, because I interviewed him for Harry Potter, I had interviewed him for the Patriot, I had interviewed him for a TV show he did called Awake. And I had interviewed him a bunch of times for Discovery. And so it was just very cool to interview him again now in a whole different context. Uh, you know, I, I don't have his home number. I don't have his email. I, I don't pretend we're, we're friends. But we're professional work friendly is the best way to put it. And he's like, hey, Ian, how are you? Good to talk to you again. You know, how cool is it to, to talk about something different? And I, it, it was that kind of a conversation. And then at the end, I had to ask him about Star Trek. Uh, I said, I have one Star Trek question for you. If they came back to you on Discovery and said, hey, we want to examine Prime Lorca or, or bring you back in some other way, shape or form. He said, absolutely. I'm going to be working in Toronto and, uh, for something. And if they need me to pop on by, I'm all for it. In fact, I may even stop by and tell them in person that I want to be on the show again. So it was, it was really very cool. And uh, he's a great guy and a great interview. So, and like I said, he's fantastic in this movie called Mass. So, I mean, those are the main things that I'm working on right now.
0: Alright, very cool. Yeah, I'm very excited to see all the new stuff that Hero Collector has. I cannot wait to see that Borg cube in person. And uh, yeah, a lot of really cool stuff from Hero Collector. So once again, the book we're talking about today is the uh, Star Trek original series, The Celebration. We're going to have links for that in the show notes, so make sure you check that out. Ian, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's been great to, like I said, finally get to meet you and hear all your really awesome stories, because you've had a heck of a career. That's that's something to aspire to Ralph, right there. Thank you so much. Great to be on. And that was our chat with Dan Chavkin with Brian Maguire and with Ian spelling talking all about the different Star Trek books they've got and that are currently out and available to pick up. And as I mentioned, if you want to pick up any of these books, I'm going to have Amazon affiliate links in the description and the show notes. So make sure you check them out. So again, one more time, that is Star Trek Designing the final frontier. The untold story of how mid-century modern decor shaped our view of the future by Dan Chavkin and Brian Maguire. Very interesting, very unique book in the Star Trek market and Star Trek The Original Series A Celebration by Ben Robinson and this week's guest Ian Spelling. I don't like to review things or talk about things that I don't like on this show, so consider that a seal of approval from me if that matters to you. I think you're not going to be disappointed by either of these books, they're a lot of fun, very different, very interesting. And yeah, you might be wondering, as we said in this interview, how can 55 years have passed from Star Trek The Original Series being on TV to where we are today and having still original things to discuss? Well, I think both these books really show how there is in fact many untold stories about Star Trek. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash today. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale, or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D-printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew, thanks for listening, and remember, fortune favors the bold.
3: Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by
4: the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.